My Heart Flies to Your Service, Improbable Matches at the Royal Court. Welcome to the If It Ain't Baroque podcast. On this episode of a Valentine series, we're looking at couples where a monarch or a senior royal made a match against all odds. Whether it's twice widowed John of Gaunt that married his mistress, or Edward II who took a male favorite, or Catherine of Valois, widow of Henry V, Victor of Agincourt, who took to her bed a Welsh squire, even though the squire was descended from the Welsh kings. Take Peter the Great, whose second wife can definitely be called a Russian Cinderella, even though she most probably was from the Baltics. Another Russian Cinderella instance happened with Alexander II's morganatic marriage, when he married Catherine Dolgorukova because he fell in love at first sight. These unions were made in defiance of all expectations and conventions of the time. Love was not just in the air, love was writing the rules. Please welcome back Chris Riley, and the first couple we're talking about is Edward of Carnarvon, i.e. Edward II, and his male favorites, Piers Gaveston and Hugh Dispenser. See, before before we go on, what's your, your views on Edward II? Do you think he's... I think he was not meant to be a king. I don't think he had the attitude or aptitude to be a king. But I don't think Edward II is a bad person. I think he's very much like his grandfather, Henry III. I think he's very much... He had the Plantagenet temper, don't get me wrong, but he seems like he was a naive but very nice bloke. He wasn't warlike like his father or his son. He wasn't hell-bent on conquering Scotland like his father was. He was simply born in the wrong century, I think. I have a bit of a soft spot for Edward II. I just can't dislike anyone except like Henry VIII and uh, what, the Earl of Warwick <laughs> and Stephen of Blois. But yeah. And I, William I, 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 and William I. And William I, yeah. I respect William I. There's, there's, uh, like, mm, there's a caveat mm. to William always, but yeah. Edward II, he gets a bad rep. Okay, so Edward II, who was Pierce Gaveston? Who was he? Big question. Great mm. question. So Piers Gaveston is the first of two terrible people who essentially infect Edward II's lives, unfortunately, because Edward didn't view it that way. Piers Gaveston is the son of a minor French knight. Um, he doesn't really come from noble stock outside of being, you know, a minor landowner, but they kind of grow up together as, as teenagers and as young men. Um, fighting and partying in, in Edward I's court. But he very, very quickly becomes arguably the most important person in England um, to Edward II, to his detriment. Yeah. What do we know about him and Edward's relationship? We can speculate a lot, and historians for 700 years have speculated a lot on the relationship between Edward and Pierce. I guess the main assumption um, is that there was a sexual element to it. For me, I don't think it's relevant either way. I think if that's what was happening, so be it. That's their business. It's not the first time and it certainly wasn't the last. Um, even a royal, you know, even a king of England, it's not the first time. And, you know, outside of that, if we scrape away any kind of ignorance towards, you know, what, what should and shouldn't happen, Pierce held immense influence over Edward II. Edward II adored him. Whether that was purely as friends or what I actually believe as, as true soulmates, Edward II couldn't do enough for, for Piers Gaveston. He gave him titles, he made him Earl of Cornwall, which is a you know, it's, it's it's a monstrous title even today. It's 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 handed to, you know, the heir to the throne. 
um, along with the Prince of title of Prince of Wales. So, you know, this isn't this isn't just a throwaway thing. This is huge. I guess the most kind of famous part of their relationship is is when Edward is crowned and, you know, and married to um, Isabella of France, which is a whole relationship in itself worth talking about. Isabella does not take centre stage at her own wedding. Piers Gaveston does. Um, he is by far the most well well dressed, well well decorated person in the whole in the whole of of Edward's court, and this really really does annoy almost everybody in England. There's there's multiple exiles of of Piers Gaveston. You know, thirteen oh one when Edward the first is still king. Thirteen oh eight, so the year after Edward the second becomes king. But ultimately, Pierce doesn't last very long, unfortunately, for Edward. He's executed in, in 1312, I believe, based almost exclusively on, on homophobia. You know, he was treated worse than any meddling queen, if you want to call him that, has ever been mm. treated, you know, pre or since. He's not executed in the way that a lord should have been executed, if that's even a thing. He was taken outside and quickly beheaded on a rock. He wasn't given a trial. He essentially breached the ordinances of 1311, which saw essentially the other barons were able to control Edward II's court. And the main culprit, the main kind of target of this was Piers Gaveston. And because he breached this by returning to court when he wasn't supposed to be, he was, he was yeah, murdered in, in really the coldest blood. But yeah, I've already said it. I, I think that Edward, with Piers Gaveston, was the love of Edward II's life. He wasn't able to mourn his, you know, his friend, his lover, whatever you want to call it, he wasn't able to mourn him for a long time. Um, he was only able to give him a proper proper burial and kind of send off several years later. And I don't think Edward ever fully recovered, which is, which is a real shame because they should have just been allowed to be who they were. Um, yes, it wasn't great for England. It was terrible for England. Hmm. Edward pumped all his money and everything into this guy and add that to the terrible loss at the Battle of Bannockburn in, in 1314 and all this stuff, it just stacked against Edward II and uh, Piers Gaveston unfortunately took took the hit massively for, for Edward. What was Isabella's relationship with Piers like? Terrible. Terrible. So Isabella of France, again, someone I've got a bit of a soft spot for, was married to Edward. And it's, this is a hugely important marriage. It's probably the most important relationship we will actually talk about and we're not going to talk about. Because they, they, yeah, um, Edward II and Isabella of France create the Hundred Years' War through their son Edward III. Um, they famously did not get on, and that was very much a political marriage. And you know, Isabella is a young French princess in England in a foreign land, and she sees her husband, the only person that she is supposed to be able to, you know, trust and have a real relationship with, and and you know, really the only real family she's got outside of France and he's off gallivanting with this with this lad and yeah I think she probably benefited more than anyone from the death of Pierce Gaveston because it didn't make her relationship with Edward much better but it removed the third in their marriage luckily he didn't have many people that liked him so his his friends they didn't exist they were Edward so no. yeah wasn't a popular guy he gets removed and there's two in the marriage, but there's not two in the marriage for long because another no. one comes along. It gets crowded, yeah. It was yeah. three crazy. in the marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Yeah. yeah. 
Edward's very good at finding very bad company. Yeah, very, very soon after the death of Piers Gaveston, he finds himself enamored with two men with the same name, um, father and son duo, Hugh Dispenser and Hugh Dispenser, uh, the younger, <laughs> or Hugh Spencer, depending on your pronunciation choice. And arguably, Hugh, Hugh Dispenser, the younger, is way worse than Piers Gaveston. He's an mm. awful human being. He causes even more problems. He causes a civil war. He causes Edward II to, to lose his throne and potentially lose his life. But again, he becomes, Edward becomes utterly transfixed on this man and, and the Hugh Dispensers, the pair of them, benefit greatly. They basically carve out their own kingdom in kind of the south of Wales and around Gloucester. And it leads to a civil war. In England, we always say that England's only had one civil war, but they have them every 20 minutes in this period. And yeah, it's it's not good. And, and this is the guy that Isabella really doesn't like. She really does not like Hugh Dispenser. Um, for good reason, he, he attacks her at one point, which is a big no-no. You don't attack women, you don't attack royal women, you don't attack the yeah. queen. Um, so he, he does a really good job of really ruining everything. He also finds himself with a with a pretty sticky end. He is executed in 1326 on the orders of Isabella and her special friend, uh, Roger Mortimer, uh, who may or may not have been her lover. There's a theme with these lot. But the, the story goes with that is, and, and Hugh Spencer is, is executed in one of the most barbaric and brutal, especially as a man, ways he is hoisted up and he has a certain part of him cut off as he's still alive burned in front of him as he's hung drawn and quartered but the best bit about this is apparently isabella watched eating an apple without even she didn't look away she didn't make a noise she just watched the whole thing happen and i think that shows how terrible of a man he was and also how awesome isabella of france was well i mean it's a woman scorned so absolutely she is badass, how well as Isabella. Mm. She's probably one of our favourites. Yeah. <laughs> She's brilliant. After he dies, how does Edward take this? Not well. Um, Edward doesn't do well. Um, it's not the best few years for Edward, following the execution of, of um, another lover of his. Um, he's basically chased to the point where he, he can no longer retain power. He abdicates in the name of his son, and Edward III becomes a puppet monarch for his mother and Roger Mortimer. That doesn't end well either, but Edward II officially finds himself in Barclay Castle in Gloucestershire, where he is probably murdered, probably on the orders of Roger Mortimer and Isabella. Um, whilst that's the one thing that I don't really rate Isabella for, is the fact that she probably had her husband murdered and then rules terribly. Um, in the name of her son for a few years. But the stories, again, around Edward's unfortunate death are, well, again, laced in homophobia, unfortunately. The method of execution is, is if you are to believe the stories, is, is mm. very, very, it's awful. Um, I suggest you Google it um, if you really want to know. I, I believe one of two things happens. He's either smothered to death or he doesn't die and he escapes or is smuggled out. I think he lives as a hermit. I think he moves to Italy, becomes a hermit. I think he visits Edward III as well. And if anyone's interested, I'll explain my theory on why. It's not my theory, it's not just mine. It's, it's multiple people think this, but I think 
you know, we associate the, the title of Prince of Wales with the heir to the throne. You know, Prince William is currently Prince of Wales after his, you know, his father Charles III becomes king, but it wasn't always the case. Edward II is the first English Prince of Wales, and when he becomes king, he doesn't give it to his son. But when Edward III does become king, he doesn't take the title of Prince of Wales. It's the only title he doesn't officially take. He becomes King of England and everything like that, but he doesn't ever really say that he's Prince of Wales. The only time he does it is apparently after a man claiming to be, I think he was called Thomas of Wales or something of Wales, a religious hermit. There's apparently there's this meeting between Edward III and this, this older man who claims to be from Wales. And I think that's Edward II. And I think he gives him permission to take the title of Prince of Wales because it's after that that he officially takes the title, which then becomes the title that you pass on to your son. I hope Edward survives, and I hope he at least gets to live a little bit of a normal life, because I don't believe he ever wanted to be king. Mm. I don't think he ever was the right man for the job, but he inherited the throne. He had yeah. to do his duty, and yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very sad story for everyone involved. Yeah. Except maybe yeah. Edward III, he does pretty well out of it. He, he does not bad. So people assume that he was gay, but he did have children with Isabella and he did have an illegitimate child. Yeah, I think he must have been, I think he was bisexual. I think he mm -hmm. was at least, he, he, I don't think he was 100% straight, if that's even a thing we yeah. can apply to, to somebody like Edward II. And I, like I said, I don't think he was the first or the last, you know, mm. king or, or member of the royal family that, that was. Um, there are rumours around William Rufus, Richard the Lionheart even. James the first, um, yeah, James the first, very famously, Duke of Buckingham's ankles. <laughs> um, <laughs> he loves the, Duke the of ankles. ankles. His sexuality is such a core part of his identity as a historical character. Mm. I think it takes away from the fact that he was a pretty rubbish king, but he mm. lived through a period of immense change. Mm. And him and Isabella had a successful marriage. They produced arguably the most successful king in English history. And yeah, the, like like you said, the fact that he had he had a illegitimate child with another woman who wasn't his wife by law, it wasn't his political wife. Yeah, he made a conscious decision to do that. But again, I, with, with Edward II, I try not to I try not to dwell too much on his his sexuality because I don't think it's important. I don't think it takes away from the bad things or the good things. His relationship with Pierce Gavison and Hugh Spencer were terrible, regardless of what they were doing on an evening. They were terrible yeah. relationships. In my favourite film, not Braveheart, he is shown as being openly gay, wearing mm. makeup and silk clothing and being really weak and pathetic. How accurate do you think this was of him as a man in reality? Not at all. I, I don't think it's at all accurate or fair. Mm. Edward II was tall, he was he was strong, he was handsome, he was he could fight. He was his father's son. He was everything that Edward I was physically. He just may have been gay. He just yeah. may have had a boyfriend or two. Like, But it's easier to display that in film in the way that Braveheart does so terribly. And it's a little better hope... in outlooking, though. A little yes, better. Yes, I was just about to say he's definitely better in outlooking. He's definitely like a petulant child in outlooking, which I rewatched recently. It's very good. He's definitely better in that because he's... He's got bravado, he's he's self-assured, which I don't think is necessarily Edward II, but he's definitely better 
He's not in mm. drag, which he basically yeah. is in in Braveheart, which is just which is just a gross misinterpretation of history and drag. A caricature, I think. Yeah. yeah. Very unfair caricature. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now let's go forward almost a century and ask Chris about Edward II and Isabella's grandson. How did John of Gaunt, the third son of Edward III, get together with his mistress Catherine Swinford, and why was it unconventional for them to get married at all? To start with, John of Gaunt is probably one of the most well-known people of the 14th century. He's the third son of Edward III, um, and alongside his brothers, um, you know, especially the Black Prince, he was off gallivanting around Europe during the Hundred Years' War. Um, and as I'm sure we'll touch on, he almost became King of Castile at one point. But the other half of this story, Catherine Swinford, is, is absolutely not cut from the same cloth. You know, you have the son of a king. Catherine is merely the daughter of a lower down knight from uh, Hainault, where his uh, John's mother is from. So in terms of purely from a social background point of view, the, the, the two were absolutely not meant to be. And also John was also married um, for the vast majority of the time that they knew each other. So that's also another reason why they couldn't uh, be together. A bit of a Cinderella moment. Star-crossed lovers there. So when did they, do we know when they met and how? Yeah, so Catherine was um, lady-in-waiting for John's wife, uh, John's first wife, a very important woman uh, in the history of England and I guess in this story as well. So before he he meets Catherine, he's married to Blanche of Lancaster, who was the sole heiress to the whole Duchy of Lancaster, which, for those that don't know, is one of the largest estates or collection of estates in England at this time. Edward III was very good at marrying his kids off to, to heiresses and into situations that benefited them. And Catherine was just somebody that worked at his wife's court. So they met in the 1360s, 1370s, it, it's very, very difficult to pin Catherine down. She's surprisingly, for someone with a name that is so, I guess, notorious, for lack of a better word, there aren't that many sources that mention her in more than passing. So to pin them down is actually quite difficult, which you wouldn't think when you you know the story of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford, but they started their affair off pretty quickly. Um, and throughout the early 1370s, so 1373 to roughly 1379, they had um, four children together out of wedlock. He's still married to Blanche of Castile until 1368. Um, but straight away, he marries again. Um, and this is for another political marriage, this time out of England. And it is to Constance of Castile. Again, I've already mentioned the fact that John was the almost king of Castile at one point. And again, it's through the second marriage um, that he almost, I say almost, he really never really almost did. But in title alone, he almost became King of Castile. Whilst he was married to poor Constance, um, he was having a pretty public affair with Catherine, who had been moved from Blanche's court to Constance's court. So she became a lady-in-waiting to Constance, and eventually she was moved to John's eldest son, Henry Bolingbroke, uh, his wife's court. So she was always around. And like I said, their, their affair, because um, it was an affair at this point, was pretty public. Everybody kind of knew what was going on, including John's poor wives. But it wasn't really seen as that much of an issue until a little bit later on, when in 1381, and there's wider context here, I think, as well. In 1381, John was basically told by the other barons and uh, the other lords in England that this is an inappropriate relationship. You shouldn't be doing this anymore. 
Um, we'll talk about the four kids later, I guess. But for now, let's let's cut the uh, let's cut um, let's cut this out, John. Um, I guess the wider context that I've implied there is the Peasants' Revolt happened in 1381, and one of the main or the main target of the Peasants' Revolt was John of Gaunt. He was seen as overbearing, far too powerful. You know, these lands in in Lancaster that he kept were second only to the crown lands themselves. He was styling himself as King of Castile. He was incredibly unpopular at this time. And to be seen to be having an extramarital affair was was even worse. So, you know, officially, they stopped seeing each other in 1381. But as I'm sure many people can imagine, they didn't stop seeing each other and they continued to have, have their affair for a few more years until Constance, John's second wife, also died in 1394. For me, and I guess people who study this period quite shockingly, John very quickly married Catherine Swinford. It's shocking for two reasons. Firstly, why didn't he marry her in the first place if he was going to? And secondly, she's still the daughter of a minor knight who has already fathered four bastard children who wasn't popular. It seems like a pretty strange decision. But it all seems to go okay. A few years later, in 1397, the king, Richard II, John's nephew, um, recognises the marriage. And with papal consent, the four children are legitimised. So they are not seen as bastards anymore. But there is a caveat. That caveat is that they were never allowed to inherit the throne of England, which is a controversial point, depending on which side of the Wars of the Roses you're on. If because you're Nathan Amin, then... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It depends if you're Matt Lewis or, or Nathan Amin, yes. because the, the Beaufort line, which it gets kind of named, because these these bastard children who become legitimised are they're given the surname Beaufort. And that's because that was one of uh, John of Gaunt's uh, French possessions. So they have four children. Most kind of importantly, there is John Beaufort, who's the first Earl of Somerset. And his daughter becomes Margaret Beaufort, who is, of course, the mother of Henry VII. So this marriage, although may seem, I guess, out of context, it's just one of those, you know, a little bit on the side that becomes a little bit important. And I'm not reducing Catherine to that. I'm sure she was a wonderful woman. But with with the context of, of who their children were and their grandchildren, it becomes arguably one of the most important relationships in all of medieval England. And realistically, it sets the scene for the later stages of the Wars of the Roses. The the improbability and the length of time that they were unofficially and then officially together and the, the deep impact of their marriage and their children's legitimacy. For I guess for wider context, Richard II doesn't last on the throne very long. Um, he is deposed in 1399, very, very re- quickly after John of Gaunt dies and John of Gaunt's son aforementioned Henry Bolingbroke becomes Henry IV, the first Lancastrian king, um, taking his name from his father's ducal claim to Lancaster. I guess at this point, the Beaufort line does become quite secondary. The Lancastrians take a little bit of time to get settled, but you know, a generation or two later, the Beauforts are really important again. And this all goes back to the fact that John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford could not separate. They could not be apart from each other. And you know, if that isn't true love, then I don't what really is? know what is. Yeah. <laughs> Who outlived whom? So Catherine actually outlives John by a few years. So I've already mentioned that John of Gaunt dies in 1399. 
Um, but Catherine lives all the way to, I say all the way, to 1403. So she survives another four years outliving her husband. She is married before as well, um, hence where the, the Swinford name comes from. But that that is a very, very early marriage that doesn't last very long. But they only spent four years apart, I guess, after John's death um, at the, just the very, very end of the 14th century. Yeah, that's very romantic. It gives me Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville vibes, mm. kind of the, the whole commoner thing. Why did you choose her instead of um, some sort of foreign titled princess and everything? And a little bit Charles III and Camilla kind of thing. They just yeah. could not be kept apart <laughs> yeah, by any by any means. That's two very good comparisons in two very different situations. But I think as contemporaries and historians we do seem to view them in similar ways so yeah i think that's a good comparison now let's fast forward a few decades it's 1420s henry v the victor of Agincourt, is dead and catherine de valois is eyeing her welsh squire owain tudor why would they be an improbable match yeah so i mean for to start as catherine de valois is a remarkable woman in her own right. And she has essentially two remarkable relationships in her life, I think. Um, I won't dwell too much on the first one, but she is the daughter of Charles VI of France. I guess one-time enemy of Henry V of England, the loser of the Battle of Agincourt, and that kind of phase of the Hundred Years' War. And, and part of the, the treaty that is signed between Henry V and Charles VI is that Henry will marry Catherine de Valois and become heir to the crown of France. Uh, Henry dies in 1422, very, very quickly after they get married. They only have one child together, who is the future Henry VI, um, who becomes King of England and France uh, about nine months old. It doesn't go very well for him, but it goes okay for Catherine. Um, she's essentially at this point stranded in England. She doesn't really, she's not been there very long. Um, they were married for, you know, Realistically, they were they were only together for months. Henry was very quickly back on campaign. And she quickly, at some point, whether this was when she was still married to Henry or not, comes across a the son of a Welsh knight called Owen Tudor, as, as you've already mentioned, spelled many different ways. I always spell it T-U-D-O-R, just so I know who I'm on about. But she meets this, again, the, the child of a minor knight. There's a definite theme um, with some of these relationships. I guess the reason this this is an unlikely, unfavorable match, whichever way you want to go around it, is, is again, status. She is the Queen of England. She's the daughter of the King of France. And here's Owen Tudor, a son of a minor Welsh noble who happens to be in the employ of her wardrobe. He isn't the Duke of anything. He isn't the Earl of anything. He's simply Owen Tudor, which, you know, seemed to... He seemed to do pretty well out of it because he did um, end up having a, a relationship with Catherine de Valois, which I think is a pretty good uh, thing to put on your CV. So the affair, because I guess it was an affair still at this point, was kept a secret. And I assume, or it is assumed, that many people in the court of her son, Henry VI, knew very well what was going on. And it was kept a secret mainly because the thought of a stepfather to a child king was incredibly dangerous or it had the potential for danger. Um, we've already seen situations with children on the throne, Richard II and his, if you, you know, ask certain people, awful uncle, John of Gorn. Um, you know, stepfather is a, essentially a more permanent advisor who could, you know, twist the royal line in a certain direction. There mm. could be stepchildren and siblings that could 
you know, muddy the waters, but, you know, they kept this relationship a secret. They married in secret. We're not really quite sure on the details of their relationship. They had four or five children. You know, anyone that knows anything about medieval history is it's always four or five or nine or 10 children. We never really know because unfortunately children weren't seen as, as, as important to, to note because many of them didn't survive childhood. So there is often cases where children are attributed to people only in passing and, and Owen and Catherine are, are those are similar as well. I've said this a few times, but the relationship was a secret, but at some point it, it must have got out. Um, and it's not well received, whether that was more public facing than actually in, in private, you know, Catherine realistically should have been married off to, uh, I guess if, her if her now brother, it's difficult because you've got the context of the hundred years war, who's in charge of who, but realistically, Catherine should have been married off to a, to another wealthy noble, whether that's English, French, Spanish, it didn't really matter, but she finds herself with Owen Tudor. Um, and eventually they, you know, it, it really does kick up a stink and on apparent unrelated treason charges, Owen Tudor is arrested in 1436. So they only get to spend about a decade and a half together um, before Owen is arrested. And unfortunately, soon after Catherine herself dies, um, just a few months after his arrest. So they don't really, like I said, they don't really get to spend much time together. Owen never really gets his, I guess, proper position at court. Um, he's always kept away. But I guess the the, the the story doesn't always end terribly. It might do for, for Catherine, uh, Catherine and Owen, who don't seem to have the nicest endings. You know, one's arrested and then freed after the love of his life, essentially, it, uh, passes away, unfortunately. But yeah, once Catherine does die, Henry VI, who is now you know, still a teenager at this point. Um, he does have Owen released and he is kind of, he is pushed to the side a little bit, but not in the sense that he is, he is hidden away. He is kept in a, a position of modest status, but his, his two sons with Catherine, Edmund and Jasper are really, really important. And they are given earldoms and their story I guess really is the beginning of of something else and why Catherine de Valois and Owen Tudor as a couple are so important. Really important part and the kind of legacy of, of Catherine de Valois and Owen Tudor is in their children. Again, Edmund, one of their sons, marries Margaret Beaufort, who, uh, for context, is the granddaughter, great-granddaughter? Granddaughter of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford. And that is uh, essentially at the start, a marriage between minor nobles. Um, but with the Wars of the Roses, major nobles die and minor nobles become major. And the culmination of this relationship is a Henry Tudor, who a certain Earl of Richmond, who eventually becomes the first Tudor monarch, Henry VII, which you know kickstarts an entire dynasty in itself. The, the marriage or the relationship, at least, of Catherine de Valois and Owen Tudor is one half of the Tudor coin that gives us a family that is so core to British history that without it, history would have been very different. Now let's shift gears and travel to Russia in the early 18th century. We've invited Catherine Curzon to shed light on Peter the Great's second marriage. For some context, why is Peter called Peter the Great? Peter is quite a polarising figure. He was 
an absolute monarch and he was an autocrat. So his word was law. He was polarising at the time. He still is today. But the thing, something that he's credited with is the very, very fast modernisation of his country. Um, he travelled quite widely and he brought back ideas and a bit of a brain drain. He brought back people that he met on his travels who were experts in different fields. And he used their knowledge and what he learned on his travels to push Russia forward in many, many decades worth of progress in a very short space of time. He was also a bit of a military genius. I'm not a military historian at all, but he had two enormous ongoing conflicts throughout his reign with the Swedish Empire and the Ottoman Empire. He ultimately prevailed in both, which was another enormous leap forward to Russia because it gave them a military and naval dominance that they hadn't previously enjoyed. So Peter the Great, at quite a great expense to his people, and particularly people that you know were not moving forward as quickly as he was, which was quite a lot of the Russian populace, for understandable mm. reasons, drove his country forward, if you like, without, with, at any expense. So for him, modernization, getting Russia into the League of Superpowers, where of course it did land, and he earned his Peter the Great, but you wouldn't want to cross him. Hmm. So he was great in terms of driving his country forward, not so great as a human being. So he has married before the, the women we're going to talk about today. So what happened with his first marriage? His first marriage was set up for a similar reason as that of Catherine, in that she was, and again, pronunciation, I apologise, Eudoxia, I don't know if that's correct, Lopukina. And she was from a very minor noble house, but she had good blood, if you like. Um, but she was seen as a really good bet for marriage because, again, if the bride was taken from a minor noble house, then it wasn't an offence to one of the other major noble houses. So if you had, say, a number of major noble houses, each with a daughter, and you chose one, you run the risk of alienating and thus making powerful enemies in all of the others. So if you choose someone relatively minor, all of the major noble houses go, that's fair enough. So that's where she came from. And... She was, um, as we'll get on to, she was um, a bit of an idealist and she was looking forward to a loving and happy marriage and she didn't get it, alas, surprisingly. <laughs> so where did it go wrong? She absolutely loved him and I think that's quite a sad thing. She was only 20, so she was relatively old for a royal bride. She was like an old maid. And she was chosen for a bride by Peter's mother because she had really good ancestry. And she loved Peter. I say she really loved him and she bore him a son and she thought this is going to be great. But she was too conservative for the great moderniser and the guy who wanted to drive Russia forward. And he found her and her family just really old fashioned. Hmm. And they kind of stood for what had gone before him. So everything that he was trying to progress past, he felt that they represented and she wrote him long love letters where she told him she adores him, she loved him, and he just ghosted her. Yeah, that's where it went wrong. And he went off traveling. He went off to the West to get his brain drained and to get his inspiration. And while he was away, he wrote to members of his family and said, it would be great if you get my wife into a monastery. She's not there when I come back. She didn't want to go, as you might understand. Mm. But she did eventually go. And she went um, just shy of a decade into marriage. She went into a monastery which is about as harsh as it gets, isn't it, really? <laughs> you know, like you're married and could you go and live in a monastery, please? 
I mean, a monastery, I take the monastery over, you know, poison and a coup. <laughs> yeah. That, well, what was interesting with it as well is that when she got into the monastery, she got a lover. Peter hated it and had him executed. She lived there quite peacefully for some years. Then she got off with this guy. And like, why does Peter even care? And he's like, well, yeah, but she's my woman. And he had him executed. So, and after that, then she got, you know, really fed up and she became quite an opposition to it. But, you know, what can you do? There's not much you can do, is there really? But then in came Catherine. In came Catherine, yeah. Who was much more, much more what Peter wanted. He was much happier with Catherine. But it's weird though, because this is not a match you would put together, is it? Because she no. was not a noble. She was not at all, no. She was anything but. So it's a Cinderella story, really. So we don't know that much about her early life. And mm. there's lots of various stories as to what jobs her parents did. There's a lot of people saying farmer, rave digger. But generally it's agreed that it was quite an impoverished childhood. So she was anything but noble. And even less is known about her mother other than that obviously there must have been one. Yeah. But who knows? So she was orphaned by the plague and she went to live with her aunt and she was about three years old. And in true Cinderella fashion, her aunt set her to work as a servant, but it was the kind of lowliest servant you could be. So she wasn't, you know, like a lady's maid or that. She was the one in the scullery, scrubbing the pots, scrubbing the floors. And, you know, this has got a film in it, I think, somewhere. (laughs) So she was doing this at 17 she met a Swedish soldier who was part of an occupying force and she married him. But again, you know, we're not having a lot of luck in these stories. And a week, one week into the marriage, the Swedish troops were kicked out and her husband went. So she kind of threw in a lot with the Russian army that had kicked out the Swedes and she came with them back to Russia. And that, as they say, is where the story starts. Yeah, because she wasn't even Russian. No, she wasn't. I love that, actually. I do love that about Russia because quite frequently you go, oh, she wasn't even Russian, but she ended up the empress. Like, and yeah. I love to see it in terms of it being so often, but it's it's women as well. So it's quite often like the women are coming good and you kind of think like the husband's like, what happened? How did that happen? Yeah. Well, who, you know, we don't truly know anything mm. about her background, really. It's one of those really extraordinary life stories. You know, it's, like I say, a true Cinderella story, but she doesn't get the prince at the end. She actually becomes the ruler, which is even better. So she comes to Peter's attention. How does that come about? She got a job with Peter's best friend. And what the job was is one of those that, in the way history quite often does with powerful women, it it goes Mm. from well, she was a maid to she was entertainment kind of thing. But she got a job in his household. And I think it's it was a domestic job. He was Prince Menshikov, and he she was one thing we know is that we're always told that she's extraordinarily beautiful. And he was, you know. Ooh, blown away and he made her his mistress he decided well well did he make her his mistress again it's one of those things that some people say is his mistress others that he thought she's very beautiful but i better not make her my mistress because if i make her peter's mistress he'll be forever in my debt so regardless of how she got there he introduced her to peter peter was equally blown away by her stunning beauty and made her his official mistress. And yes, Prince Menshikov was rubbing his hands. So she ended up, came from the daughter of a grave digger, unwanted orphan, scrubbing the grapes, hooks up with an army, who knows what's going to happen. Suddenly, she's the mistress of Peter the Great. So they have kids together? They did. She had quite a lot of kids together, actually. Mm. 
they had quite a lot. I think they had a dozen and two daughters lived to adulthood, which is, um, even by the time, that's pretty poor odds. Anna and Elizabeth lived to adulthood. Yeah, so, and it was fully-fledged relationship, absolutely. Peter is so horrendously violent, but Catherine manages to calm him? Yes, bizarrely. So this blunt instrument, who is like a whirling dervish, killing people left, right and centre, the least likely person, I think, to maybe fall in love like this, fell in love. And in their letters to each other, he is incredibly affectionate and loving. These are really romantic letters from this guy who is then brutally slaying his own son. But she was also a very, I mean, she, you think about the life she'd led. She's had to think mm. on her feet a lot. You know, you have to be a pretty savvy operator to get where she got. But she was also, I think, naturally just a really compassionate person. And she was also very, very calm in a crisis. And Peter turned anything into a crisis. And she was known as being one of few people who could calm him down. So he would have rages about little things. And, you know, at first he seems quite funny. But then again, this is someone who had their own son killed. So, you know, a Peter rage is a real rage. And when he was raging, they would go, go and get Catherine. And she would be sent for and she would come and talk him down. And it's interesting because you think, I wonder how many lives she saved <laughs> by talking Peter down. Yeah, she was she was really, really, really good about it. And she was also super good. She was a strategist as well. So when um, the Russian was surrounded by Turkish troops during the Ottoman conflict, Peter was, you know, no choice but surrender. The dream is over, all this. And she said, why don't we all just hand over all our jewels and offer them those instead and kind of like pay them to go away? And they accepted it. The Ottoman leader took the jewels and went away. Now, it's hard to think Peter, with his infamous temper, would have come up with that. He would have just gone out there, you know, yeah. weapons flailing and met a sticky end. But yeah, she was, um, she was a really calm presence. I mean, I think she really loved him. I don't think this was just a power thing. The letters back and forth, this is a couple that were deeply in love. So I guess she saw a different side of Peter to some people, including his first wife. Yes. <laughs> so he's kind of like if you take Henry VIII, but make him George the First, and yes. also make it Game of Thrones. Yes, exactly that. I like it. Yes. <laughs> and if he got angry at a pen, you get the wife. <laughs> it's over. Good night, Vienna. Sorry, quill. Yeah, quills. They had quills back then. Yeah. Quill. Now let's talk about Peter and Catherine's great-great-great-grandson, Alexander II of Russia, and his own wife, Catherine. So Alexander II is happily married, by the looks of it, to Empress Marie. How was their marriage? It was quite an interesting one because Alexander met her during his grand tour, Mm. and his father did have a wife that he had earmarked for Alexander, but relatively progressively, he said, I want you to have a say. Because if, you know, it's it's good to be married, but it's even better if you can be kind of happy. Mm. So why don't you have a say in it? So while he's on his grand tour, he met 14-year-old Princess Marie in Darmstadt and the two hit it off. And we always hear this like, oh my God, 14-year-old. Ah. The only problem with that is that there were doubts about her paternity. So his parents were understandably a little bit concerned, but... They looked into it, They, you know, they were, all the sort of marriage brokering was done. And it was 
a relatively easy ride. But he was absolutely in love. And because they said, you can have some say in this, that this Princess Marie of Hesse, it was like a love at first sight situation. It was mutual, which is quite nice because, you know, quite often, as you guys know, you see it's love at first sight on one side and on the other side, it's horror. Yeah. Kind of like, but this one, it was absolute love at first sight. And before he left the court, she gave him a locket containing a lock of her own hair. So, you know, this is a really big deal. And he wrote to his father and he said, oh, she's great. I mean, he didn't say that. She's great. She's amazing. She's awesome. Her father said, yeah, do you know what? Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. That's going to work out. So that's how they met and they were married. So it's, it's, this is one of those where you go, it's all going to be all right. It's going to work out. No, <laughs> not quite. No. The marriage happens to his first wife and just a bit of backstory on her. She starts, she struggled. So we've talked previously about Catherine the Great made an effort to assimilate and integrate. She really, really struggled. She found um, life in the court very dull. She was used to a much more lively setup. And obviously, there's a huge amount of protocol. And she just found it really boring. But she was happy with him. So, Alexander meant Catherine when he is one of those again that, you know, there were a whole lot of penniless nobles sloshing around at the time. He met Catherine when he went to see. A military manoeuvre, which again sounds like a euphemism, but it wasn't. He went to see a military manoeuvre that was being held at her father's estate to celebrate one of Peter the Great's victories, actually. Um, It was the anniversary of it. And he saw her and, you know, time for a sharp intake of breath. She was 11 years old. And he thought, oh, she's quite charming. But luckily, nothing happened then. I have to be really clear, nothing happened at 11. But he remembered her because when her father died, she and her sister were sent to a prayed school and he foot the bill, which is quite interesting. Now, obviously, he was friends with her father, so we could say that. Right, but okay. it's kind of hard in these modern times to not be a little bit suspicious of his motives. So he paid for education. Then when she was 16, he visited the school. It sounds creepy saying it, but he was impressed by how she had blossomed into a young lady iffy by our standards, quite rightly by our standards. And he offered to make a lady waiting to his wife who was dying. <laughs> it's just such a harsh story. But she said she wouldn't be his mistress. Now, this is where things take a really dark turn in that her headmistress and her mum were both kind of poking her in the back going, you should be his mistress. You should be his mm. mistress. Don't be a fool. Don't turn it down. You should be his mistress. And I think to us, like, you know, as women, that that's kind of like one of those whoa moments like you know she's 16 (laughs) (laughs) you just sold your teenager yeah because she really really liked him and she enjoyed his company but she wasn't thinking in terms of becoming a mistress because Mm. i think most people aren't but they said well if you become his mistress it's going to be really good for us you know we've struggled for money and think of how it's going to be for us so she did eventually she actually did one of those things so um Her mother died, so she was quite emotionally fragile at the time. And his son died as well. The way it was kind of described was that she was, you know, she was so moved by his plight that they ended up becoming intimate. Um, But obviously there is a question mark over her own vulnerability at this point. Mm -hmm. But that's where it began. So it's, it's, it's one of those stories that is a bit, ooh. And it's the same as well that that night, so his wife is in, you know, perilous straits. She wrote in her memoirs at the time that after their first night, he said, oh, like you're, I now think of you as my wife. 
And and if I can't ever can, I'll marry you. And it's like, that's, so it wasn't, you know, this was obviously something he'd been thinking about for a long time. Mm. This is, that's not how it goes usually, is it, for, you know, a, an emperor to kind of like have a quick knee tremble with one of the staff and then go, oh, do you know what now? I'm as good as my wife now. Yeah, yeah. What was the yeah. age difference between them? Oh, let me have Just, a quick look. Yeah, because if he was, if she was 11 and he was 13, that's fine. <laughs> 29 years. Lovely. <laughs> that's not my get on. Yeah, because if I was yeah. going to go well, it was three years. It was it was nearly thirty years. Thirty years. So that's a lot. I mean, he has kids older than her, doesn't he? She was younger than the son who died. That his death led to them becoming intimate. So talking about the children, they're not happy, are they? No, no, they weren't happy at all. Obviously, they ended up having children together, mm-hmm. and there was a whole question mark over is this going to be a threat to the succession because obviously you know not only russian history but we look back through history and we see this happen now their children were quite clear that they weren't interested mm. but again as we've seen for instance peter the great that what people say and mm. what they then do can be very different you know one minute someone's saying they're not bothered the next minute you're on a slow boat to assassination <laughs> yeah they weren't i mean i'm sure we'll move on to this but the marriage when they eventually married the marriage was unpopular the children didn't like it his family they felt it both as a betrayal to their mother which i think you know we can understand yeah. it's an apocryphal story that he had catherine and their illegitimate children moved into apartments above his wife while she was on her deathbed and that they could hear the kids running around that's apparently not actually true they were quite a distance apart but she knew about it and you think about you know your husband's not even willing to wait till you die and you're clearly dying and i think it's understandable that we can all understand why his children would have been upset on their mother's behalf it's just at the time when you somebody really needs people around them. They don't need to know that he's having another kid with his mistress right now. He wasn't at all apologetic. You know, it wasn't one of those where he felt terrible and it was this and that. He was just like, deal with it. Like, what's the problem? He's very intransigent about it. Was that a love match? I think it was. Actually, it pains me to say it. Mm. I think that it was like a love match that came out of something else. So whether it was love with him or it was almost that he was determined to get her Hmm. and he got her and then he fell in love with her. Did she really love him or was it the best she was going to get? Was it a good deal? Hmm. I'm not willing to categorically say it was a love match, this one. I think maybe it was, but I also think maybe from her point of view, it was um, in what could be a tumultuous time and where things were very far from certain it was a way of being certain. But I think it turned into a love match. I think they were in love with each other. But whether it started that way, whether there wasn't a bit of on both sides, you know, on his side, she's gorgeous, I'm going to get her. And on her side, I'm in a really perilous situation in terms of stability. And this is a good way, you know. And She certainly did like spending time with him and she was very fond of him. And I think it probably turned into one. But I think it'd be interesting if you could get inside their heads at the start, particularly hers, I think. Because she was really young, so... As possible, she thought it was love. Yeah, and I think as well that if, you know, she'd led quite a sheltered upbringing as well. Mm. And obviously she'd been in this school and he paid for her to be there, which was incredibly generous because what would have happened to her if not for that? And then you've got your mother, who's mm. the person that you look to for guidance, particularly in this area. You're not surrounded by a huge number of a community of women who have lived lives. Or the one you are, which is your headmistress, is also saying you should definitely sleep with them. You know, as you were saying, it's when does your brain mature? There's all, you know, we've all talked about this before that quite often when you're young as well, you're really set on this is definitely the right thing and I really want it. And maybe 10 years along the line, you wouldn't have made that choice. 
But I you're making yeah, your decisions based on emotions. Yeah, yeah. and I think that yeah. they were, I think there was definitely an affect, affection between them. So I think it did become like a loving marriage. And, you know, by all accounts, people that sum together are very, very happy. There was obviously a lot of affection there. So we've, I guess we've seen worse relationships, but that 29-year age difference and the whole meeting her at 11 and then sticking it out till she turned 18 is all a bit iffy. <laughs> she had some real daddy issues, I think. Catherine Howard and Henry VIII. This yes. gave me those vibes a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And what was interesting is that he said, Alexander said that what he really loved about her was that she centred her entire life around him, that she didn't want to have a social life. She didn't want friends of a similar age. She didn't ask for any of that. Anything that she wanted was based on him, that her entire life was being his wife. Red flag, red flag, red flags. Yeah, I think for an older man with a younger wife, yeah, those red flags are going up anyway. And that he didn't question that, that he thought that, you know, the best thing he could say about was that she lived for him and him alone. So she was completely subsumed as a person by this Mm. marriage. And that's what he loved. It's not like you might think your husband might say, do you want to go out? Why don't you go out with your friends? Or um, what are you doing? What are you up to? What, you know, what are you doing tonight? Are you going out or, you know? But no, she's not going anywhere. She's got no friends of her own age. And he said, you know, it's remarkable because unlike other young women, she's not interested in any of that. I think maybe age probably had something to do with it because their first love is, is, is it all not for the boys to be fair but for the girls it's all encompassing they want to be with them all the time they do they kind of ignore their friends and if you think as well about her situation here Catherine's that she's not got options she doesn't yeah. no, no where does she go yeah there's nowhere is it because she yeah. basically you're in you know not i'm not saying this but in the parlance of you know she's damaged goods she's been a very public mistress and then eventually i mean once you're married that's it but She's been a public mistress. She's got no money in her family. Her family saying, well, you should go with the emperor because that's going to really help us because we've got no money. Mm. That's a huge amount of weight on very young shoulders. And as I say, the people you look to for guidance, your headmistress, who is, you know, you've been in a school, and your mother are both preaching this same message. It's not like you can go, oh, no, I'm going to go out and get a job. Yeah. This is your career now. So how does this relationship come to an end? Well, the relationship and the marriage comes to an end, as many of them do, with the death of one of the parties. But because we are, you know, in true tradition of what we've talked about today, it wasn't someone peacefully passing away in their bed. Alexandra had quite a lot of threats of assassination and attempts on his life throughout his life. And one day, Catherine had a premonition that this was going to be the day. And she told him not to go out that night. And this is one of those things where if this were in a film, you'd cringe because he calmed her down by having sex with her. That he basically took her over a table. And apparently that was enough for her to go, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) He went out and he had like an ongoing, every single Sunday he made the same trip. So he was someone who, which is quite audacious if you are someone who knows that you're target for assassination. Mm. But he was one of those people you can understand who was not about to change his routine because obviously as well, he'd been doing it for years and he was still walking around, still doing his wife over a table. He was still very much just doing his own thing. So he goes out and he is assassinated, basically. A bomb was thrown at him. It didn't immediately kill him. But he thought he was fine. He got out. He felt fine. He didn't appear to be injured, but he wasn't injured. But what he'd reckoned without is that there were other bombers in the crowd. 
another bomb was thrown. So the mistake he made was he got out of the coach because it was damaged. Another bomb was thrown and this bomb went off right in front of him. Hmm. So he was still alive. <laughs> He's a bit of a bit of an iron man, this one. But he was very, very badly injured. So he was taken back to the palace. He had, at this point, essentially lost his legs. There's various reports saying they were very badly damaged, but there's other ones saying that they were completely gone. Hmm. Um, he had he's basically like a massive hole in his torso. He was not for this world. So the family came and went around his bed. He's given the last rites and he died. So that's how it ended. So what happens to him afterwards? What happens to him? This is quite interesting because although there'd been no challenge for succession, hmm. he was a bit of, um, you know, those people who like to create issues. So he had like basically said to his little kids at the dinner table in front of his other kids, um, would you like to be the czar one day and things like that? So there was a great fear that despite the fact that she had said that she had no interest, that he had not indicated any official succession, there was still a fear that she would she would mount some sort of coup. She was absolutely devastated at his loss. She fell apart, as you think we can understand, when she saw his body. Hmm. Um, and obviously it would be quite a monstrous sight. He's a very badly mutilated guy. But at the funeral, she wasn't allowed into the church. And she and the children were made to stand just inside the door so they could witness it, but they couldn't be part of it. And they weren't allowed to go to the mass in his honour at all. So there's already very much a separation. Now, her marriage to him was what is termed morganatic, which is someone of the much lower social standing. So she has no rights to kind of assume any power. Her children have no rights to the throne. But she was given a massive pension on agreement that she would leave her official residence, which was at the Winter Palace. And basically, the understanding was she'd be given an enormous amount of money to go away. And mm. she was quite happy to do it because, you know, by this point, as we said, she was in love and her husband had died horribly. And she had no reason to want to remain in Russia. And I think there was probably also a little bit of fear yeah. She did. If she seemed to be a constant presence, then obviously people might rally around her, maybe if they're opposition. And that even if she didn't want to be a part of that, that put her and their children at risk. So she ended up going to France. She lived very, 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 very well. The Russian imperial family never warmed to her, but it didn't really matter. She lived in fine style. She was one of the most celebrated hostesses in France. She had a salon where she had visitors, the great and the good. She outlived the Romanovs then altogether. She lived for another 40 years after his death. Yeah, so she would have. Yeah. Oh, she would have done, yeah. She, yes, she died in um, 21, 22. So she was probably very glad she'd moved to France by that point, I would have thought. <laughs> Absolutely. A great thank you to Chris and Catherine for joining us today. And thank you listeners for tuning in and catching this episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Like, subscribe and share with your friends. Your support means a lot to us, truly. You can find us on social media with the handle If It Ain't Baroque podcast or If It Ain't Baroque history. If you're in London, please join me on one of my walking tours, including the recently launched Royal Love Stories, where we see where these couples lived, loved, married and sometimes died. For more history fodder, please see ifitaintbaroque.art and reignoflondon.com. See you next time!